Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it's made. I'm talking today with Noam Juppmann. Thanks for being on the podcast, Noam. Thanks for having me. And we will be talking about your paper, Medieval Universities, Legal Institutions and the Commercial Revolution. And could you briefly explain what this paper is about? Sure. The paper is a history paper that has uh, a particular historical motivation. So Europe experienced this commercial revolution that we refer to in the title in the late Middle Ages, was transformed from a society that didn't have a great deal of trade, didn't have a great deal of urbanization, to a society with cities and trade across the continent in the span of the year, let's say 1000 to 1400. And the question that we came to this paper with is, you know, what contributed to that transformation? What were the institutional and sort of economic forces that helped to support the rise of trade and urbanization? In addition, the paper is about a particular institution, which is the university. The university is notable in this setting because just when Europe was economically transformed, one sees the first universities being established on the European continent. And the university as, as a European institution is something that I think is globally quite special. It's different from other educational institutions around the world and different from other educational institutions in Europe at that time. One of the key characteristics of the medieval university was a great deal of training in the law. So the first medieval university, arguably, although probably, in Bologna was specifically focused on training in the law and in Roman law in particular. And so it seemed like a remarkable and very interesting sort of economic coincidence of economic transformation and commercialization. The rise of the university as an institution providing human capital um, for, for European societies, and specifically the rise of a certain type of human capital, which was legal training, which was arguably linked to the rise of trade or to the support of trade across space. And so the project is joint work with a co-author, and how did you come to work with them? Yeah, so the project is, is co-authored with Davide Cantoni. He and I have worked together for a long time on many different projects. And this was, in fact, the first. So we began this project a long time ago when we were second year graduate students. We were taking a class together taught by Jim Robinson on historical development. And we had coffees together, David and I, and just talked about different research ideas, different topics that were of joint interest to us. And the commercial revolution was one topic that we began to discuss regularly and soon we we linked it to two different areas that that interested both of us one was the rise of legal institutions and, and this was kind of inspired by a book by harold berman um, called law and revolution and the other was something that was not so focused on in the literature but that was the university and so we came across a book pretty early on in our conversations by a man named hastings rashtal i mean it was an old sort of early 20th century i think history of, of universities in europe and it seemed very linked to this story of the rise of, of human capital, but, but especially legal training in the early universities and the rise of trade. Most interestingly and importantly, it gave us a sense of maybe a, an identification strategy in that as we went through the this sort of encyclopedia university by university, we came across the University of Heidelberg Century, which very explicitly stated that the University of Heidelberg was established as a result of something that was completely out of left field for us which was the papal schism. 
So the papal schism, which we can talk about in more detail as, as you'd like, was an event that, that split the Catholic Church. It wasn't particularly economic, but it was linked to university establishment because German university students and faculty who were in French universities at the time, including the University of Paris, which was sort of Europe's flagship university in the Middle Ages, all of these German universities and faculty were forced to return back to Germany for religious reasons and a new university, and, and in fact, several new universities were open to take them in. And we saw this as an event that, that looked something like a natural experiment in university establishment, which then got our coffee shop conversations even more excited and eventually turned into a term paper. Um, and Davide and I have been working together ever since. So how central to the project was it that you found this natural experiment? I think, would you probably also have written the paper if you would not have found something like this? Or? Yeah, it's a great question. And it relates to a question that I guess many students and faculty, frankly, ask ourselves, which is, you know, which projects do we pursue? How much work do we put into projects that maybe have some limited upside? So Davide and I were very excited about this topic. And I think, you know, we felt that there was an interesting story to be told, even if we couldn't perfectly, you know, identify causal effects, even if we didn't have a perfect natural experiment, it seemed to us like a good economic history article could be written that first described patterns of urbanization across space and time. Second, link that spread to the spread of universities, let's say in the panel, in, you know, might be the panel of countries, ideally a panel at a more geographically disaggregated level that maybe provided some, some rich evidence on, on mechanisms by studying individuals who are legally trained. So we discovered a very interesting historical source on the universe, on, on the University of Bologna's historical graduates, what positions they had and, and where they died over time. And we felt early on, even before we, we really you know, identified this, this experimental, quasi-experimental setting, there was a good economic history slash historical development slash economic growth paper to be written on these institutions. So there was certainly some work on this. It was not particularly quantitative. It didn't have much in the way of, of identification. And it didn't have the full set of economic relationships mapped out from human capital production to the development of legal institutions, let's say, to the reduction in the costs of trade across these fragmented legal jurisdictions that existed prior to the general adoption of Roman civil law across Europe. And so I think we saw certainly an interesting paper to be written even in the absence of a great identification strategy. But as suggested, sort of finding that great identification strategy, you know, immediately captured our attention. Now that said, I think something that, that David and I acknowledge and that we certainly mentioned in the paper is that there was an immediate trade-off in a way between studying the commercial revolution at its, at its source, which was 10th or 11th century Italy. That's also when the first you know, university was established in Bologna in the late 11th century and versus studying a more or less clean quasi-experiment of university establishment, which we found in Germany in the 14th century. So temporally and spatially quite removed from some of the economic and institutional changes that first caught our attention. And so, you know, that there was a bit of a trade-off there. 
we recognized it. And what we eventually concluded was we could study this very interesting historical natural experiment. And by digging into the historical evidence on how that natural experiment affected the German economy, we could draw some general lessons for how universities and legal training affected trade in early modern Europe more generally. And we would argue what we find in Germany in the 14th century could be extrapolated to some extent, at least to the commercial revolution more broadly. But maybe the, the shorter answer to that question is, when we first started working on it, we thought the topic was important. We thought we could write a good economic history, or you know, let's say a journal, let, to put it in journal terms, we could write a good paper for something like the Journal of Economic History or Explorations in Economic History. We could write a good paper, maybe for a journal like the Journal of Economic Growth, if we wanted to you know, target it that way, or the Journal of Law and Economics, if we wanted to frame it that way. We understood that if we found a really nice identification strategy and rich enough evidence, we could make this into a more general interest paper that really described the commercial revolution and the role of universities and legal institutions in a way that would really make an impact on the whole economics profession. And when we discovered that and then managed to put in years and years more, more time, eventually we did end up with a general interest paper. But it wasn't obvious to us, honestly, at the start of the project that that's where, where this would end up, but it did seem important to us. And again, going, you know, I think it's worth emphasizing, you know, we, we really enjoyed the process. It was, it was a process of talking together in coffee shops and sitting together in the basement of a library, you know, collecting data on market establishments in Germany, but, but it ended up being quite fun. So rewarding for sure. And would you say like the goal that you had when you wrote the paper is really just to say something about the commercial revolution in 14th century Germany? Or do you think the lesson here that maybe training in, in law matters for, for commercial development of the country can be applied to a modern context as well? Certainly both were motivating us from the start. I think the commercial revolution for us was certainly a, an event of first order importance in Western history. When we think about the rise of the Western world, we often think about the Industrial Revolution, and we don't quite think about where Europe was just before the Industrial Revolution, or even you know, just before the discovery of the Americas and the rise of Atlantic trade that, that you know, transformed Europe's economy. You know, what, what we had just before the rise of the Atlantic trade was a Europe and a Western Europe that was already extremely economically strong, which is a very, you know, it would have been a very surprising thing from the perspective of anybody in the Mediterranean world in, you know, the ninth century, that Europe would be poised to take over the world upon the discovery of the new world. That's a surprise. So how did we get there? That was, was certainly at the front of our mind. And we thought that, again, a really great economic history of that period was super important. But what we thought of as the drivers potential of that transformation were drivers that felt to us to be really general. And those were educational institutions, but not just educational institutions, educational institutions that provided a certain type of training that could then play a very specific economic role, which is reducing uncertainty in trade, reducing administrative uncertainties and, and helping to support administrative regulatory capacity. That, that's especially important when you have economies that maybe are poorly institutionalized, where trade costs are high because of fragmentation in polities and in legal institutions. And so creating some sort of common legal language, some set of common legal norms and expectations and training a class of individuals who are able to apply the law and generate that sort of common knowledge and reduced uncertainty 
is crucial. And I think the, the idea that what we were studying in the past was something that was more generally relevant was always there for us as well. And in the context of economic history, it's but often it's quite hard to come by the right data that you need. So how did this interact with, with your research design, your question design? When you first had the question in mind, did you know you would find the data? Or? No, it's a great point. So again, I think we always had this idea of like different possible papers that could be written. And as I said, like this started as a term paper and probably the first data that we had were more or less the off the shelf data. So these are like Byrock data on city sizes and data from secondary sources on establishment dates of universities. And then eventually we complemented it with you know, our own data collection initially from a source on, on these Bologna University graduates. I would guess that some of our first presentations of, of this, this sort of work involved just those data sets. When we discovered the Heidelberg, um, and it ended up being Heidelberg, Cologne, and Erfurt sort of together, natural experiment in German university establishment, we were of course excited about it. But then the question became, like what economic outcome data might we link to that? And what was crucial was that Davide is, you know, sort of among the world's experts on German historical data. And he knew of an extremely rich encyclopedic source on German city history called the Deutsche Städtebuch. So the Städtebuch has entries for every single German city, which, which essentially covers all of Germany because every piece of Germany is associated with an incorporated space, a city or a town. So for all of these 2000 towns in Germany, there's an entry with historical information included among which are some indicators of historical economic changes. The one that we focused on in this paper was, was an entry for the formal granting of the right to hold a market from the emperor to a city. And so for each of these 2000 cities, we realized we wouldn't have perfect data on economic change over time, but we would have this indicator of economic change going back to ancient times of new market rights being granted. And so the question became, could we get rich enough data on these market grants around the time of the university establishment natural experiment to identify some interesting economic effects? And that's really what we spent, you know, literally years on going, you know, city by city, German state by German state, collecting these market rights data. I don't know if we collected all of Germany at the end of grad school. David and I both have, we call them fond memories. But, but I think fond memories of there's a week or two after the job market, you know, packets are mailed out when one is kind of in, in a limbo zone. Your job market paper is away. And this paper was, ended up not being either of our job market papers, but we had job market papers submitted to, to you know, all these different jobs. And then you have a few weeks before you go away for the holidays. And David and I worked intensely on this paper. And it may be the case that at that point we had all of the states coded. It may not even be that it was all coded then, maybe, but, but maybe. I think around that time, we completed the coding finally of all the market rights data in Germany. So this was years and years of data collection that finally came together. And then, and then you, know, you run a regression and see what comes out. And then it turned out we found some, some interesting patterns. Um, so then probably when you were sitting in this economic history class, you did not have the scope of the project in mind. So when did you kind of realize that this was going to become a really, really big project? Was it more like at some point you realized, okay, this is going to take me five years? Or is it more like, okay, now it's a year's gone and this project still is not done another year, another year, another year? I don't know. So there are a couple of ways to look at it. One is in grad school, I think graduate students should always diversify their projects. That is good. And David and I both were working on several projects in parallel. 
at the time. And, and so that, that one reason that this lasted a long time is that we were working in parallel with other things. This wasn't our job market paper. This day and age, graduate students will, will have co-authored job market papers. Maybe even sometimes two graduate students will use the same paper, although maybe that's rare still today. But I would say if one of us had used the paper as a job market paper, things would have accelerated a little bit. But it's true. A, a big part of the process was just collecting the data. And as graduate students in sort of a pre-digitization world, now it's, it's easy You send stuff to India or something and things are coded or you OCR it with, you know, just take a bunch of photos. In those days, the ancient days of, of 15 years ago, we coded things really ourselves, like looking at a physical book and typing we understood it would take time. But that said, this is a great example of a paper that kind of captures how our profession works. You present a paper, you get feedback, you rewrite, you present the paper again, you change your analysis. I and mean, we also changed even the, the structure of our data at times. So we had some patterns that were initially where, where we were presenting results over 25 to 50 year to 100 year periods. And then our focus really narrowed because we got feedback from seminars saying like, the right way to think about it is in this narrow time frame, And so that's what we ended up focusing on, which, which I think was helpful. But especially early in your career, I think you end up revising a paper pretty significantly. You continue to collect data. You submit a paper to a journal, you get a rejection, you revise significantly again, and that takes a year. And then you submit it to a journal again, and you get a revise and resubmit. That's a meaningful revise and resubmit. And, and you engage with it really wholeheartedly, and you spend another year revising the paper. So I mean, it's a paper. I don't know when it was published. I think it was published maybe in 2014. You might be able to check that. David knows this when we talk about it about this, but I always get these years wrong. I think it's 2014 and it's a paper that we began in the fall of 2006. I don't think anybody would ever have the audacity to say, I'm going to work on this project for eight years. And at the end of eight years, it's going to be a really good publication that we love. I think there was no way for us to foresee that. I think what we saw was we enjoyed talking together about the, the idea. The first couple of years, a lot of it was really kind of like conceptual and intellectual. We were reading the histories, which was, was super fun. I'm reading Harold Berman's work reading a range of, of historical pieces on, on the time. And then we started writing and then collecting data in parallel and then running some regressions and then getting feedback and then reading more history to try to complement the regressions. And then at the end of the process, you know, in some ways it, it came full circle where, where as part of, you know, revising the paper for publication, we were asked really to fill in a lot more history. And so we went back to try to read a lot about who were the people getting law degrees in early modern Europe and what were they doing? Can we provide some really archetypal examples of people who were trained in law who were reducing the costs of trade? And that was super fun in its own way. So it really is almost like multiple different stages that were intellectually quite different one from the next. And that kept it like interesting and it generated variety and that was fun and it didn't feel like it took eight years i would say i mean i i don't think we ever felt like it was a a terrible struggle and i think it was mostly fun i think there were there were definitely long shifts where where we were coding data in, in the library basement not in the the loveliest of environments actually like kind of an ugly cafe but at the end we what you know one of the memories i have and i don't know if this is far afield. But, but just to make the point that it's important to have fun while you do the painful work, we were going city by city in Germany, entering market right data. And we wanted to get the dates of city incorporation as well, which oftentimes 
could be most easily found in Wikipedia. So then we would look, we did have computers then and internet. So in every city we would type into Wikipedia and then we would see these like beautiful German Wikipedia entries with the crest and beautiful cities, like the cityscape, the landscape and the church. And so, you know, city by city, we're, we're kind of like, like doing this like virtual tourism in Germany. And do you think it's maybe particular to economic, an economic history project that it takes that long? On the one hand, because probably no one else is going to do the same project and come up with that year first, uh, project first? Yeah, so it's kind of two parts of that. One is, is, do all papers take this much time? And then is there in some way less stress about competing papers? I would say in terms of the amount of time, I think papers can vary in length for different reasons. So for sure, data collection here took a long time. I'd say just reading the relevant literature took a huge amount of time. I think one reason I think many economic historians do their best work later in their career than, than people in other subfields do is that mastering a literature is much easier if you've already read all of it. So if, if David or I, you know, became narrowly focused on the commercial revolution, it would be much less effort now to master that literature than it was then. So, so some of it is, you know, fixed cost investment in mastering a historical time period. I would say that, so in that sense, as you get more experience as a historian, I think certain projects can take less time. I would also say that today with digitization, archival data becoming easier, it also takes less time just to collect the data. But I do think historical projects being interdisciplinary take more time typically to do well. I think because you have people writing relevant papers from disciplines other than your own, presenting different types of evidence, I think the nature of trying to understand sort of historical contingency and context is harder when you need to master you know, a different time and place. And I think the types of data limitations that one encounters are often tolerated by editors and referees, but their patience isn't infinite. And so you try to do the best you can, and that, that can involve much more effort than designing a really clean experiment. If you design a clean experiment, in some sense, you're done. I mean, if even if it's not clean, the, either the referees and the editor like the experiment or they don't. If they like it, there's nothing else you can I mean, every now and then maybe you'd be asked to replicate or to re redo something that might complement the experiment or run a follow-up. But once an experiment is done and run, people like it or they don't, you analyze it, you're done. With historical data, you're almost never done. And the question is, could you find more data? Could you do better? Can you find more qualitative evidence? Can you do better? And so that can take time. In terms of this question about how much competitive pressure do you feel to produce a paper quickly. I think that's a very good question. You know, is it the case that historians projects somehow are, you know, less overlapping and therefore less reliant on being first to answering a question that everybody knows is the next question in the field. And I think, you know, history offers a great deal of variety. And so, you know, if in behavioral economics, there's you know, a well-defined set of behavioral biases that are kind of well understood in the literature theoretically, some of which have never been identified empirically, it becomes clear to scholars in that field that identifying one of those behavioral biases really cleanly in a high-stakes setting in the field will be a great paper in that literature. And then presumably there will be multiple people aiming at that target, looking for the right context. And history's greater variety perhaps means that there are fewer competing projects in that sense. So I do think that's possible. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Noam, for being on the podcast. You're very welcome.